0: My guest today is Viviana Zelizer, the Lloyd Kotzen Professor of Sociology at Princeton University. Her most recent book is The Purchase of Intimacy from Princeton University Press, a look at money and relationships and how they conflict and complement each other. Viviana, welcome to Econ Talk.
1: I'm delighted to be here.
0: Viviana, our culture has areas where the use of money in relationships is totally encouraged and taken for granted. So if I go to the grocery and I pay money, and grocer gives me some food, whether it's a chain or my local corner grocer. We all understand that relationship is a monetary relationship. There's no, there's no discomfort there, and I may have a friendly relationship with that grocer, but the fact that there's money involved, we don't think twice about it. But let's take another case where food is involved, and let's suppose uh, my wife just had a baby and a neighbor brings over a meal as a way to help us get through this challenge of having uh, a newborn in the house, and I offer to pay for it. Now, in that situation, and which I would be horrified to do, my neighbor would be horrified, in that situation, money is somehow out of bounds. Our culture would frown on the use of money in that setting, and we treat those relationships very differently, even though they're both about food, and um, – React to that example.
1: Oh, no, that's a wonderful example of the sort of differentiation that Purchase of Intimacy tries to make. The first uh, question is you know, why, why does that difference exist? And why do we feel so uncomfortable with the payment, the money payment, to an intimate, uh, any kind of intimate relationship, in this case, a neighbor or a friendly neighbor? And the whole point of the book is to explore this division, this idea that that intimacy has to be, that in fact that the world divides into two quite separate spheres, and one that is intimate, that is emotional, that is intuitive, and the other that is rational, that is calculating, that is impersonal, and the assumption is that mix the two and each will corrupt the other. And the book is trying to show in what ways this kind of reasoning is misguided. Now, the, the, the example that you made of the purchase of food from a regular provider, the, usually it will be, you know, well, kind of spot purchases or even sporadic purchases you could but you could imagine friendships developing even with service providers of some kind that you know you, that they might eventually do a discount or um or that you might want to, at the end of the year, give a gift to sure. that person. And you will be introducing some kind of economic transaction into that relationship that is apparently much less intimate to differentiate it, though, from more instantaneous pot- spot like market transactions. So that what what is interesting is not just the division between intimacy and non intimacy that we make, but we also within those markets, we you know, in the very example that you gave, we would start making differentiations.
0: Well I like the point which comes through very often in the book about the blurring that you talk about. Uh, you know, as 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 scholars, we don't like blurring in general yeah. we we like clean
1: dichotomies yeah
0: we like models that have stark predictions not maybe predictions yeah. but in the case of the the grocer a lot of people i think pay a premium to shop at a smaller provider rather than a big box store because they like having that relationship that you're talking about and yeah. over time that relationship does get blurred and it's true there's a self-interest involved obviously the, the more closely you relate to the grocer or the person at the corner store, the more likely they'll do you a favor. They'll order something special for you. They'll let you uh, pay later, come back later with the money. They might um, deliver when they don't usually deliver, but because you're a longtime customer. We all understand that there is a, a self-interested aspect, but there's clearly a non-self-interested aspect. Uh, the, the people enjoy having a different non purely non-commercial uh, relationship with such in such a setting, and people enjoy having uh, pleasant friendships in, in some degree with the people we do business with. It's part of it's a huge part of our life. Why wouldn't we want? those friendships there.
1: Exactly. Yeah, okay, but let me just add, but the interesting thing is that, you know, I had not thought of this example uh, until you brought it up, that you might use an economic transaction, and and I define gifts as also economic transactions. You might use a gift to, in fact, you know, purchase a gift that you would give, a small thing maybe, that you would give one of these relationships to say, well, you're special.
0: Sure different than you would with the tip.
1: Exactly. Well, exactly. The tip brings us into a very different uh, set of questions.
0: Well, let, I want you to expand on this uh, notion that you mentioned a minute ago, that, which yeah. you were talked about separate spheres. You talked about how uh, we're encouraged to keep these separate out of fear that something might, uh, they might damage one another. And in the book, you talk about uh, this also as a hostile world, that these that these two types of transactions, sure. the intimacy and the commercial, are often viewed as hostile to each other. Talk about the, first, explain the sort of standard view that, that you're critiquing, and then yeah. give us your critique.
1: Okay, no, uh, the, look, the, the the main, the standard assumption is that there are two. The first step is that there are separate spheres, right? That there is this sphere, as I said, of, of economics, of rational calculation, and then there is a very separate sphere of intimacy, close ties, et cetera. So the first step is the assumption of separate spheres. And then the second step is, what I call hostile worlds, that if the spheres uh, come mix with each other, there will be contamination in both spheres. Now, what is very interesting is that it works both ways. So that, let's say, for the first, the contamination of intimacy by mixing it with economics, you know, think of concerns with prenuptial agreements or the worry about loaning money to friends uh, or of workplace romances, right? Sure. I mean, those are general. Now, now, so, so, so sorry, the, the, what I, I wanted to distinguish that, that the, the, the concern with mixing economic, economic activity in the warm world of friendship, et cetera, that will turn those relationships. Whether it's friendship, marriage, parent-child, they will they will turn into a calculating mar- market as soon as you have some kind of intrusion of money or economic calculation. But what I what I what is interesting is it also works in the opposite direction, so that people worry, you know, that if workers get too chummy on the job, they will spend more time with each other than with their work. That intimacy, the other direction or the other concern. In the hostile world's worries is that intimacy will interfere with efficiency. So that, in a way, you know, people want mix intimate relations with economic activity in either direction at your own peril. And in fact, I am now writing a paper that Looks at the second worry, the purchase of intimacy. Mostly looks at the concern and 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 how really the mixture of or, or or the intrusion of economic activity in intimate relations. What happens then? Now I'm actually looking, you know, more briefly at what happens and why are people so worried about intimate relations in the workplace? You know, ranging from from the regulation of, of dating to the concerns with nepotism to family business mm-hmm. etc so that's that is those are the concerns now my the book really challenges all these taboos right showing that the world does not divide into two segregated spheres of intimacy and economics, and that all of us routinely mix our most intimate relations with economic activity. That, in fact, we owe economic support to our children, to our spouses, to our parents, to our friends. That the separation is a is a myth, and, in fact, that no loving household could survive without economic activity.
0: And it's a very interesting thesis. One One of the things... I want to challenge you on, the, on that is to hear you talk about the distinction between what in economics is called the positive and the normative. So the positive side of this in economics, that's a formal term, not not meaning uh, optimistic or cheerful, positive meaning how the world is and normative being how it ought to be. I think most people would say you're right on the positive sense that, that we do constantly mix in various ways our economic I'm gonna say financial, our financial monetary transactions. It's not just
1: monetary transactions. It's household work. It's it's a lot of other economic activities. Okay, exchange and not just money.
0: Okay, exchange yeah. in yeah. various ways. So so we do blur those distinctions. We do have intimate relationships, parent, child, husband, wife, uh, uh, doctor patient and examples you give in the book, where where money in- inevitably does play a role. That's the positive side. But the normative side is ha- how we want it to be. And and as a scholar, as, as an economist, um, I'm very much uh, in agreement with you that that we should treat those those that blurring as as a as a piece of reality. That's the way the world is. Now let's talk about the normative side, though. Is it a good thing? Should it be encouraged or discouraged? Um, and, and why do we have such emotional reactions to these examples? Let me give you a quote I once heard from uh, from someone who got a job working for a very wealthy, uh, well-endowed foundation that gives out a lot of money. Yeah. So he got a job as an executive in this foundation, and he, said, he told me that a friend – after he got this job, a friend told him, well, you're never going to have – uh, you're never going to get a bad meal or an honest compliment for the rest of your life, <laughs> meaning you're going to eat well because you're going to be going to a lot of fancy dinners. And because you hand out money, you're not going to get an honest compliment. – you're going to get a lot of compliments. They won't be very honest because people are going to be trying to get access to the foundation that you are in, you know, involved in. And we don't like that idea. right? We don't like the idea that friendship is purchased even though we understand that these exchanges take place in friendship uh that there are incentives for people to behave in certain ways, but do you think that's a good thing
1: okay this is you know this is a very central question in fact, it has two parts because let me let me start with the first part if uh, if in fact the world Behaves as I'm saying if in fact, you know, we are mixing these things. And I think that that's, as you say, the positive description is, is exactly that this is what happens. The question would be not just is it good or bad, but first why? You know, if, if, why do people, why are people so worried and why do people think in hostile world terms? if, in fact, they're mixing, right? Why Why is this ideology so powerful? It's not like everybody else is silly and I discovered the truth, right? Correct. I am aware, and in fact, this this you know, I will say that it's only when I was ending the book that I realized well I really have to, you know, think a little more a little harder about this issue since it's something that comes out with my students, you know, saying, but really and then then why do we feel so strongly about this? And what I what I argue is that you know, we use people, we use hostile worlds as a kind of magic spell or a story to keep away the evils of the wrong relationship. Like, mm-hmm. I'm your date, not some you know paid person. I'm not, or, or in the case, you know, I'm I'm not just in a, a nanny. Let's say I'm not just a hired maid. I'm like a mother to your kid. Uh, or you're not my lover, you're my lawyer, so that you're trying to say, well, you know, we're we're constantly trying to establish, you know, what kinds of relationships we have with people, and one of the ways that we, we, we make that separation is by saying, well, we're not, like, into money things. We're... We're better, and by making that that effort that we make in fact blinds us to the actual economic exchanges that are going on let's say you're trying to differentiate you know a, a date from a a, a a paid relationship of intimacy or a even an engaged you know who's paying for the date. The point is that we're, you know, we're unco- we're we're uncomfortable with money, and yet the transaction is going on.
0: Absolutely. And the
1: nanny is getting a wage that recognizes her work. She's you not.
0: Know. She's not working for you because she loves you. She's not working for you because your children are so special. Exactly.
1: Although, although
0: they may be. And and she may like you even but Absolutely.
1: That you know, that and we may want to talk more because I think that the issue of paid care is becoming both uh, academically and policy wise one of you know, a crucial issue and we can talk about that more. But in any case the so that so that we could see that we deploy the separate spheres ideology to manage the kind of threat that of, of our good relationships seeming too much like bad ones. So one way of differentiating is well I'm not like, you know, it's not like a money thing.
0: Right. We have a certain romance about ourselves, our identity, in, in some exactly. of those situations. It's...
1: Okay. so But that doesn't answer your question is, you know, do we worry about, you know, money? You know, should we worry about this monetization? And the, the, or, or concern or entering of economic calculation. Well, my answer would be, well, I wouldn't worry whether, and let's go with money. I wouldn't worry whether, money is intruding in a relationship, I would be worrying about what kinds of mixtures are occurring, whether there are mixtures that are demeaning, mixtures that are exploitative. So I, and, and in fact... And that again, the issue of paid care raises this very poignantly. My argument is once you stop worrying so much about mixing intimacy with economic activity, we can work towards right mixes. You know, what is the kind of right? This friend, this person who rightly so would be worried that their friends, you know, that people would approach him just, uh, because, you know, he has money to give, and that's a particular also uh, you know, consequence of certain kinds of, employ- of of jobs that will have, you know, money attached to them in different ways. But in any case, the the, the issue is, well, he may worry about that relationship because it would be exploitative, etc., but it doesn't mean that he won't have other kinds of monetary relationships with friends, family, and co-workers, which are not corrupting. You see, so the issue is not... Do we worry generally about the intrusion of money, which is the standard trope of social thinkers forever, and instead say, well, which kinds of mixtures are, again, unfair, exploitative, and those we don't want? I mean, and, and I'll just say one more thing. And, and 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 the 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 book or my argument should not be seen as saying, oh, uh, you know, the market and economic transactions are wonderful always, and people who worry about it are silly. You know, people who worry are, you know, of course, are trying to kind of protect us in some way. But uh, but the point is that they get the causal connections, wrong. That is, they assume, oh, money enters, consequence, values, and intimacy fly away. And what I'm saying is, no, 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 it doesn't always work that way. And once we get those wrong assumptions out of the way, we can start asking the interesting questions, which are, well, when is it corrupting and let's fix it? Or when is it enhancing? You know, you you help your children pay you know your kids through college, or or as most uh, you know, many many households give money for the first house or a mortgage. You know those kinds of economic arrangements are an intrusion, you could say, in quotation marks, of money, and yet they are enhancing relationships, not right, damaging them. Well, I'm sorry, you know, this was uh, long, but I right. this is you you raised a you know a, 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 a question that goes to the heart of
0: of this book. Well, let me. Um... Let me An example just came to mind, and then I, I want to switch gears a little bit. The example that came to mind talking about um, you know, some of these relationships are good, some are not so good, a lot of athletes – I've never noticed this until just now, but a lot of athletes will talk about how once they become successful, they become professional athletes and they get enormously wealthy. They're very proud of saying, but, you know, but I haven't changed. Uh, you know, that money hasn't ruined me. It hasn't changed me. And often, you know, the example that the story we will talk about on these when it profiles someone like this is uh, when the athlete returns to his hometown. He still hangs out with his old buddies, the people who were uh, his friends when he was nobody. But of course, uh, those are the friends that he knows are truly his friends because they were his friends before he was somebody. Uh, once he's somebody and has a lot of money, he's has to be more wary and is less sure of, of who is his real friend. And in that sense, uh, it's perhaps not surprising that so many athletes are still good friends with the people that they grew up with. I just, I never thought about that example. I don't know if that fits in with your No, view no. Of the world. I think,
1: you know, I think you raised, it's very interesting because I have two other parallel examples to the one you raised. Is it, One is lottery winners. One of the first things that you, you know, I've never done this systematically, but but I've always been intrigued. One of the first things that lottery, big time lottery winners will say, well, you know, I'm going to keep my old friends. I'm going to be the same. Or if they ask them, you know, what do you plan to buy? You know, you have suddenly $4 million. And I've heard, I was actually once on a, Television interview, and before me was a lottery winner, and you know again like four million dollars. And what are you going to buy? Well, a better lawnmower. There you, know, you
0: go. Yeah. To That's...
1: show the normalcy, <laughs> and that will keep you know neighborly relationships. And the the other example, you know, you'll see there's different spheres, but I think that are different. Well, I don't want to use spheres, but different uh, locations. But raising that your same question is with child actors. You know, when parents are interviewed again, these kids that earn. You know, millions of dollars, and the 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 one of the ways in which the parents will convey to the press the kind of normalization of the childhood is again saying, well, we keep them with their you know regular friends, or we give you know there was a famous, not a famous. A, a famous very interesting interview with when Brooke Shields was just a kid, and and I kept that interview. The mother was asked about precisely, you know, how has her life changed, et cetera. She's, not, not, she's just like a regular kid. I give her an allowance. Oh, yeah. Right? Just
0: like a regular kid. Exactly. <laughs> you know, she was
1: earning a million dollars a month, and, you know, the, like, $5 allowance. But the point is the point that you're making, well, not, you know, you're making Different points in your example, but one of the points is kind. First is that the type of uh, um, the, the 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 huge changes in economic uh, location in a way kind of get normalized by maintaining earlier relationships, thus yeah. kind of protecting against exploitation, or also that certain kinds of economic activities convey the meaning of normalcy.
0: Yeah, no, that's a nice point.
1: But I mean, I think that, you're, that they, they, the, the example of the, the sports, you know, the the, the, the very high paid sports, it, it make, makes that point, I think, very nicely, and they're differentiating Relationships, and again, when they go back, for example, with their uh, you know childhood friends, it's not that that money is not going to be involved. They probably will be treating. You sure. know, they go out to a bar. They will be treating maybe everybody for a beer.
0: Right. But or they're not. not.
1: Or they may be. In fact, you see, they may use. And again, this is where you can how. Relationships really shape the economic activity. they may treat everybody to convey certain kind of relationship or they may in fact be quote cheap and not pay to kind of test what kind of relationship one sure. the others will buy sure right yeah, absolutely yeah let me
0: let me give you another example that that um your point brings to mind about what the real question is what kind of relationships do we want and make sure they're not uh distasteful um one issue that's come up in a number of previous podcasts uh, in this series is the issue of organ donation and whether we should have a market for kidneys, whether, say, kidneys and other body parts should be bought and sold. There's a whole bunch of areas like this. You mentioned a number of them in the book. Um, talk about. Uh, we could talk about adoption. Uh, these are issues that have enormous emotional uh, baggage. Uh, for most people, and they're very uncomfortable with the suggestion that people should be able to buy and sell uh, babies or body parts or all kinds of things that we have uh, this emotional uh, baggage about. And most economists, many economists, I don't know if it's most, but many economists, being less worried about this, want to see uh, a market f- for kidneys. They, they want to allow people to buy and sell kidneys because they think it would have an enormous impact on the supply. And that uh, fewer people would die uh who are currently on dialysis, and the counterpoint often is, well, but see that's going to introduce money into this, that's going to have all these other incentive effects, which are often true, there will be other effects but but your point, and I'm going to put words in your mouth and let you- dig- agree or disagree yeah, your point might be, well, medicine's a pretty financially graded activity already I mean to argue that a that a poor person Shouldn't be allowed to make 10,000 dollars off a kidney because their judgment will be clouded, and they might donate a kidney and not realize the risks. while the doctor who is putting the kidney in is making 500,000 dollars a year from the donate from the kidney that was, that was a, a, properly done through this clean, non-monetary method, the doctor's not a volunteer. The doctor's in the middle of a financial transaction, and the whole thing is a certain romance that's, that's an illusion.
1: Yeah, okay, now that's again something that I've been concerned and, and, uh, about that topic, one of my, uh, former students here at Princeton who now is a professor, uh, teaches sociology at Arizona, Kieran Healy, just a book just came out by Chicago Press called Last Best Gifts. And this was his dissertation, now turned into a book, and it is a study of the economy of blood and organ transfers. Mm-hmm. And plus is another a, a wonderful paper that is forthcoming by a UCLA graduate student, whose dissertation is comparing the uh, egg donors and sperm donors, the economy uh-huh. of those two, which are very different.
0: Similar, similar set of emotional financial exactly. issues, though.
1: Okay, so so absolutely. So you know, this is this is a. Uh, you know the let's take the uh the case of the organ shortage which is you know so dramatic and uh, whether or not we should turn that into a regular market in order to have you know a, a greater supply and there you, you know one of the uh, you know anticipating i don't know if you, we want to discuss that later but i anticipating one of the other Arguments that I critique in the book, which is what I call the nothing but economics.
0: Yeah, explain right? explain that uh, the nothing but. It's a little hard to hear. It's easier to read on the page and to okay. Ear, and let, let
1: me try. Right, ahead. so yeah, I call it uh, well. Let's say if I call it nothing but economics, but let's call it. We can also call it the, uh, the, the you know the market argument you know, the pure market argument, in in which, you know, what's that argument? It says that uh, people who worry about mixing economics and intimacy are really misguided, but not because of all these reasons that I gave, but simply because intimacy, be it the sale of uh, children or, uh, you know, Give, or the sale of, a, of the provision of an organ ultimately, if you look close enough, they work very similarly to other kinds of non intimate markets like the sale of cars or of plasma televisions that ultimately all transactions all economic transactions can be reduced to one explanatory uh, 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 model, which is a cost benefit, and you know, if you look hard enough, that's what you will find. Maximizing
0: the- under constraints, exactly. uh, where prices emerge, whether they are monetary or non-monetary prices, and and I I will quote uh, one of my old professors, George Stigler, yeah, just to get your uh, yeah. your blood going. Uh, he used to say. Uh, There is only one social science, and we are its practitioners, meaning (laughs) it's the ultimate nothing but. Everything is nothing but economics. It's all about exchange. It's all about self-interest. It's all about rationality, and that's that's a viewpoint I'm sympathetic to, but it's not the whole story, and I – no, you don't think so. So go ahead.
1: Exactly. So you know, and of course, the 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 hero in the or the the courageous uh, you know advent, most courageous adventurer in that field is Gary Becker, who because in fact he uh, took over the work of sociologists quite explicitly by saying that the economic model could explain all these things that sociologists had been trying to explain from marriage uh, onto all kinds of other issues. Now, let me. Let me say two positive things about that model. The first one, that at least, unlike the hostile world, it recognizes that activities like household exchanges or organ exchanges have an economic component, right? The kind of recognition that a hostile world won't make. They will say, no, no, it has nothing to do with economics. So that's a plus. And second, more, even more specifically, when it comes to Gary Becker and the study of household economies, as some feminist economists have actually acknowledged, you know, we, we do owe him a debt, because until Gary Becker, economists didn't think that households were... At all sites of economic activity. So, just even though his actual then analysis has is problematic, the fact that he recognized it as an economic as a site of economic activity deserves, you know, praise. No, okay,
0: clearly so, created a tremendously uh, uh, innovative literature within economics, and of course, it spilled over into other fields.
1: Exactly. Now, but ultimately. He's wrong, and, and from my perspective, he's wrong because it doesn't recognize the fact that underpinning any kind of markets are different kinds of social relations that people have, different markets have different meanings, so that a single market model saying everything can be reduced to this market has to be blind to the reality that there are multiple markets, each with, in, in, each composed by different kinds of social relations and different kinds of meaning systems, of values, so that the market for babies, you know, has economic components, but it's not the same as a corporate market or a market for cars, because the social relations of parenthood, the meaning of children, which I, you know, wrote a book on the meaning of children, et cetera, are not reducible or not certainly not identical to the kinds of economic relations and meanings that are involved in the sale of electronics components, for example. And if we don't understand what are the underlying differences, then we can't really explain or predict properly.
0: Well, let me... Yeah. That's, that's an interesting argument, and... Um... Let me give you a counterpoint and, and get your reaction. Uh, certainly true that the market <clears throat> certainly true that the market for babies and the market for cars are different, as you point out. There are obvious things that are different about them: emotional issues, cultural issues, um, certainly biological issues that that affect us in all kinds of complex ways. But I think one thing that that Gary Becker would respond. One thing I'd respond is, oh, that's true, but supply and demand still work. That is, if you get an increase in the demand for uh, adoption or an increase in the demand for kidneys, uh, these, these products that are not like potatoes, it's still going to be the case that the price is going to rise. It may not be the monetary price. It may not be the legal price, but there will be certain behavior that we can predict will happen as a result. Do you agree with that, or do you think that's just...
1: Well, I think I, I, at some level I agree, but I would also say that that gives me so little information, and it's so general, that I won't understand how markets work by that general proposition, and to be specific, I would not be able to explain why in the late 20th century in the United States, poor mothers that could not support their babies uh, had to put them in what were called baby farms so that they paid women and they put them in these homes where they probably would die, but they had to pay to get rid of a baby. And about by 1920s or so, you have a booming market for, you have a beginning of a booming market for those babies in which people start paying huge sums of money to get those babies, and it's not just any baby, it was, you know, certain kinds of babies, mostly blue-eyed, blonde, curly-haired, little, you know, as, as they had Air babies. Yeah. I would not understand what's going on simply by that general principle, because I would not understand how the market works, why certain kinds of children, you know, when and 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 how do kids enter market? Which kids? I I you know my explanation would be would be so light that it wouldn't really amount to much.
0: Well, I think that's a criticism that can be made of economics generally. We also don't have a very good idea of why certain colors of cars become come into fashion. there's there are fads in that. Uh, we probably have more to say about adoption preferences relying on biology than we do about car car preferences. But that's, it's an interesting question. It's a very, um.
1: And not all economics. I mean, you know, one of, one of the fascinating, you know, one of the wonderful things that is happening is to note the changes in the world, in, you know, in the, in the study of economics. Absolutely. And I think that momentous changes, slow but momentous changes are happening right now that allow a dialogue between economics and sociology, which was really there, it's a, actually, there's changes both in sociology and economics that make at least the possibility of a dialogue that was completely hushed for years.
0: Yeah, it's a much economics is a much less sterile uh, field than it was
1: oh, 50 or, even
0: fifty, forty years ago. Yes. Um, it's a much more interesting well, place you know to live. just the
1: development of behavioral economics yep. of game theory that immediately introduces all kinds of elements that open up the possibility of dialogue,
0: yeah, and we uh, we've had some some podcasts along those lines let me let me go back to your hostile worlds world for a minute, and I want to give you a quote uh, from Friedrich Hayek, which is a very dramatic statement about hostile worlds and i i want to, um let's talk about it so here's here's the quote it comes from the fatal conceit and what hayek was arguing is that family life and market life require us to be schizophrenic it's very much the hostile worlds idea and one of the things i loved about your book and the, and the thing that's it's so provocative it really forces you to think about These issues, whether you're a sociologist or an economist, it's such a fertile and interesting set of ideas. Here's
1: what
0: what Hayek said. Part of our present difficulty is that we must constantly adjust our lives, our thoughts, and our emotions in order to live simultaneously within different kinds of orders according to different rules. If we were to apply the unmodified, uncurbed rules of the microcosmos, i.e. of the small band or troop or of, say, our families, to the macrocosmos, our wider civilization, as our instincts and sentimental yearnings often make us wish to do, we would destroy it. Yet, if we were always to apply the rules of the extended order to our more intimate groupings, we would crush them. So we must learn to live in two sorts of worlds at once. And what Hayek, there, as you pointed out a, a few minutes ago, and so I want to come back to Hayek saying that if we run our families like businesses, they won't be very pleasant. Most people have that—that that either it's a prejudice or a belief or a, a, a desire to for that uh, to avoid that. Uh, but it's the other direction I want to come back to that you pointed out is, is also there in the hostile worlds hypothesis, which is what Hayek is saying is. Just as it's a mistake to try to run a family as if it were a business, it's a mistake to run a business as if it were a family or even at a larger sense, it's a mistake to run a nation as if it were a family. And So one of the implications of this is that socialism, which was one of Hayek's big issues, is is not going to be a good thing. It's going to be anti-civilization, but you might apply it as I've thought about to corporate responsibility. This desire that we have to have corporations run in a more loving way, and what Hayek is suggesting is that that's a mistake. So give me your perspective on that.
1: Well, that's I mean, what a great quote! I did not know that quote. Yeah, it's awesome, Hayek. isn't it? it yeah.
0: It's uh, it,
1: you, know, perf- you know, it it uh, it, it perfectly uh, summarizes what I'm critiquing.
0: I'll give you the page number uh, when uh, via email.
1: Terrific. <laughs> no, no, terrific because this is you know, you 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 obviously captured what I was. Trying to criticize well, let me well, there's several issues here, but because the issue first the concern that or which I raised earlier in our conversation that organizational efficiency is threatened by any kind of intimacy within the organization, which is in fact a growing concern in American corporations, there is a a, a very interesting paper by a Yale law professor, Vicki Schultz, that talks about the sanitization of the workplace
0: right sanitization the
1: sanitization uh-huh. of the workplace and in fact you know as i said i'm you know, i I'm, I'm, I'm writing uh, there's some of this in purchase of intimacy very briefly and i'm expanding on, on it now but there is some evidence also that there's re- greater regulation for example of of dating relationships you know you you probably remember the stone cipher Debate why, you know, why did he have to quit? Because they discovered that he was having a relationship with a coworker worker you know, um, about two years ago, they discovered some racy emails that don't sure. cipher, and he had to leave. But why did he have to leave? Because that kind of relationship... Uh, brought embarrassment uh, to 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 the organization right sure. and there are now all kinds of what are called cupid contracts and love contracts to try to regulate that but it's not and, and by the way the, the 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 concern is not just with this kind of um, uh, intimate love relationship but even with friendships you know the concern is that friendships will threaten the organization collusion all kinds of things and again the evidence on that is not very strong. You know, it goes both sides. You know, sometimes, yes. But again, it's another place that you have to ask, well, then how come family firms are one of the strongest organizational business uh, forms in the United States? And family firms, you know, certainly are mixing intimate relations and other kinds of forms of valuation than pure efficiency.
0: Well, that's an interesting question. And I there have probably been studies on it that I'm not, not aware much. of. Not much.
1: Not much. Well, there I should
0: mean, be because uh, yeah. we all have anecdotal evidence yes. of, of family firms that work beautifully and those that destroy families, right? Absolutely. So it's a very uh, interesting area.
1: No, no, but there is evidence that family firms, in fact, are, are very effective,
0: too. Oh, of course, yeah.
1: Economically effective.
0: No, that's why I say it's anecdotal. I yeah. Think we know some horror stories on the negative side. The positive side is very powerful. It's obviously one way to... Um, Deal with capital market incompleteness, especially in for immigrants who come here. With they obviously, are families and yeah. and community relationships are very very important in economic success. Um,
1: no, but but you did raise the issue. I did not forget that you raised the issue of corporate responsibility. We we actually did not go into. I mean, I I was also we had a leftover on the organ market. Yeah. But let's let's <laughs> let's let's leave uh, this uh, book on last best gifts, which really answers those things very very nicely. Okay, but, uh, we'll,
0: we'll put uh, a link up to it. Uh, yeah, that, that would be
1: yeah because it you know I think reader uh, uh, listen your listeners who are interested in the topic will find that it, it uh, you know very interesting. In any case, the the issue of course you know it's, uh, it's not an issue that I have studied a little bit. I have studied in in some research I've done on ethics and economic sociology, so I have looked at corporate codes of conduct and that kind of thing. But the more general issue of corporate responsibility, there is again a big debate in whether and you probably is is what you're referring, a debate, whether, in fact, corporations, by taking on kind of uh, uh, moral responsibilities, are being irresponsible to the stockholders, right? And then there's some groups that actually try to argue that, in fact, those acts of you know, virtuous behavior are efficient because, for many, you know, they're broadcasting uh, some aspects of the organization that make, you know, that make increase their profits, right?
0: Sure.
1: So, 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 whether in that case, you know, I mean, it's a that's a little bit uh, less directly. Um explainable by the purchase of intimacy, but again there i you know I would argue that uh certainly the the acts of corporate the mixture of uh responsible moral concerns uh it, it, one should not assume that that will necessarily mean the elimination of efficiency and again there I think that there's empirical evidence on both sides. but the fact is that it's it's. I think that it's a growing trend.
0: Well, I, let let me think of it a different way, which comes partly from from reading your book. I find it uh, again very stimulating. Um, you referred to a work that worries about the sanitation, sanitization, the, the sterilization of the of the workplace. Yes. Yeah. This, this obsessive worry about. Uh, The role of friendship or sexuality or other issues, and therefore the the workplace becomes a much less interesting and and perhaps less productive place if we become overly concerned about these issues. Let me try to get at it a different way. Uh, When I talk about a firm being run like a family, many, many successful firms do introduce the intimacy that you're talking about here, not quite in the way we've been referring to it so far, but in a different way. Let me try to explain uh if in the old days and it may still be true if you worked for southwest airlines yeah. uh you had a lot of loyalty to the organization uh and they explicitly as do many corporations they explicitly tried to create that loyalty that feeling of community as which is which is you know both self-interested because it makes often for a more effective workplace and it's also more Pleasant because it's part of our lives. We spend a large part of our lives in our workplaces. Why shouldn't they be more communal, more pleasant, more friendly, et cetera? So Southwest Airlines, in the old days, and again I think it's still somewhat true, really worked hard to create a tremendous amount of camaraderie among their employees and a lot of affection. Uh, you know, the examples that that are very powerful are the, you know, the the CEO. Herb Kelleher at the time would go down to the baggage claim area on Thanksgiving or Christmas and would work alongside the the baggage claim workers shuffling luggage around now. Obviously, that was good PR. Although he, yeah. he never promoted it, it was good for, for for the for the organization, though, and it obviously meant something to those folks. And if you asked other CEOs why they wouldn't do that, also, I think they'd say because I couldn't fake it. I think Herb actually did enjoy going uh, down to the baggage claim, uh, and and working. There was a story. I don't know if it's true. I read it in a in a in a book about Southwest Airlines. There was a story that when they would recruit uh, workers they put a bunch of job applicants in a room and they tell them well one of the things we want you to do is we want you to write a five-minute presentation and each of you will get up front of the room here stand up and and present why you're right for the job or something about yourself So everybody starts scribbling furiously and then after a few minutes they invite people up to make their presentations and supposedly what southwest would do is that instead of watching the person making the presentation the southwest people would watch the people in the audience how many of them would be scribbling away, working on their own presentation instead of listening versus the people who would be empathetic and smiling and trying to encourage this poor person who's standing up on short notice to make a presentation who might be shy? And they would they would hire the people who are empathetic, not the people who are the good presenters. That, that had no value whatsoever. The whole thing was a charade to try to – uh, select on the basis of empathy, so that 's a really beautiful example
1: oh, absolutely. i don 't know if
0: it's true and i don 't know if it 's important but the example the point I want to make is yeah. that in a lot of American corporations there is this perhaps fake uh, perhaps real mixing of intimacy and or, or or what we might call emotion and and the and the economic and um it 's very effective It clearly is better to have an organization where the people care about the organization and not just themselves. And yet, I think there's, Hayek is right in the sense that to extend that beyond an organization to society at large is very dangerous. So I think that your point, which you can agree or disagree with, would yeah. be: well, yes, yeah, some of these are good, some are not good, and yeah. you have to look at a case by case basis. Uh,
1: look, that's a great example that that you give. Now, it, what is it? there's two many things that are interesting, but one of them uh, is the comparison between top down construction of intimacy by the corporation. And which kinds of intimacy does the top consider contributes to organizational Mm -hmm. efficiency? So, you gave one example, for example, also the growing institution of mentoring, right? You're encouraging a a, a kind of intimate relationship between the mentor and the mentoree. Absolutely. You do Christmas parties, you know, so there's Mm -hmm. certain kinds of top-down corporate initiated intimacies that 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 belong to one category right and sure. then the question there be, becomes what many people would say is fake and i would agree that you know it's not necessarily in some cases yes it's probably pr it's probably an artificial use of the concept of family in a setting that is not a family to manipulate relationships but you know there can be also some you know authentic and then we have to get into what we mean by authentic. So top down is one category, but then what? It? Then the other, the the ones that firms are more concerned with are the bottom up ones, the friendships and the uh, you know types of personal connections that that grow up spontaneously and that may not necessarily contribute to organizational efficiency. What we're beginning to realize, and it's not, you know, just my research, but research by other economic sociologists within uh, different kinds of organizations, when the extent to which many of these, you know, body system arrangements and friendships do contribute to organizational efficiency. So I would say to Hayek, you know, yeah, worry a bit, but don't worry so in, as you predicted, I would say, mm-hmm. in such a generalized, undistinguished way, because you won 't understand what is going on and and then you can set up an empirical agenda to try to study and you can do that in what ways do intimate relations in these organizations contribute or threaten organizational efficiency there's interesting work. done by some MIT sociologists, for example, on the referral system in certain uh, organizations when people uh, within the organization refer friends or acquaintances. And what's the effect of having those people in the organization? It seems pretty good.
0: Yeah. Well, I I think Hayek would uh, find no problem with organizations that choose whatever methods they think work best, knowing that, that in... Organizations that are run well will attract people, and those that won't uh, will struggle. And I think his his bigger concern was was the our desire to to push that intimacy to the to society at large. But but it is a it's a very interesting uh, area. Well, we're almost out of time. Yes. I Do you have? Uh, do you have five or ten more minutes, Viviana? Because I wanted to read you one more quote. Oh
1: yes, let's do
0: that. Okay, because it's on paid care, and I think you'll give you a chance to close yes. out with that. Yes,
1: yes, okay. That's, that. that I, yeah, it's a very important area. Okay. Yes.
0: Let me let me read you a uh, an excerpt from an article in the San Francisco Chronicle. Uh, that is a nice example, I think, of this issue of um, the blurring that we've been talking about for most of this uh, podcast. Here's the quote. These days, it's possible to outsource nearly every part of parenting except maybe the hugs as a burgeoning industry springs up in the Bay Area and major cities around the country to help busy, well-financed moms and dads who lack either the time or the self-confidence to do what past generations of parents did by themselves. This new growth industry also includes potty trainers, party planners who specialize in the under-10 set, and lice removal experts. Yes, Bay Area parents can even hire someone to come to their house and pick the nits out of their loved ones' locks. So, you know, some economists would say, yeah. Uh, that's comparative advantage. That's that's what economics is all about, specialization, and that's all to the good. Others are horrified by it, the idea that, that parents would outsource some of these functions and pay for them. What, what's your reaction?
1: Well, I mean, those some of, some of those examples are extreme, and then they become like silly almost, the extent to which – but I think that there is – a central issue that as more women are in the workplace and uh, as the population ages, we do have a growing problem of who does the care for children and who does the care for the elderly and who does the care for the sick, right? Which has been not, you know, not traditionally, but for some. Some social classes and some segments of history, uh, uh, women's jobs. What, one of the arguments that the book, uh, makes is against the concern that if you have, uh, paid carers, be it nanny or nurses, that are paid to do some of the care, the caring, again, we should not assume that paid care depletes love. And we should not assume that no pay, that when this work is done, by can, it's necessarily guaranteeing good care. So that again, and, and one of the, the main concerns in this area is that because we have these hostile world view about paid care, this sense that it has to be better if it's done without pay, it leads to underpayment of carers to lack of recognition of paid cares and, in fact, compounds the problem. So, again, here, uh, you know, if we stop worrying about mixing, in this case, the intimacy of of caring for kids or the elderly or the sick, if we stop worrying about mixing it with economic activity, again, we should start worrying about how do we achieve the right mix? You know, how should we pay and, and how, in and what way should we treat this paid care that so would enhance everybody's welfare? the people who are cared for, and the people who are doing the care. Because at this time, it's, in most places, it's, it's quite disgraceful. And a lot, and not all because people are concerned about the mixing. There are many other issues going on. But the, the, the goal of equitable mixes is, you know, if I want to leave a message again, is don't worry about the mixing. Worry about right mixes of economic with intimacy in all these domains.
0: Well, that's a good place to end. Uh, thank you for a very uh, fascinating hour. My guest today has been Viviana Zelizer, the Lloyd Cotsen Professor of Sociology at Princeton University. We've been talking about her book and her ideas. Her book is her latest book is *The Purchase of Intimacy* from Princeton University Press. Viviana, thank you so much.
1: Thank you very much.